0: This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. We're in Michigan for this episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast once again, Talking with me with this episode is uh, Travis Fritz, co-owner, co-founder, one of the main driving forces behind... Old Nation Brewing. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: It was kind of a cool thing. You know, I've I've had you on this list of people that I I should talk to for years, but just didn't know who you were. I didn't know it was you that I should be talking to. Sure. And then thankfully, uh, another brewer put us in touch because they knew we're we're making this trip. And, uh, uh, you know, and so it was nice to be able to connect it. Because I see Old Nation Beer where we are in Colorado. It's just one of those consistent out-of-state brands where we get M43 and Boss Tweed on the regular in the state. And so you know for a number of years it has been the kind of you know consistent distributed hazy beer brand. Sure. And that is the perspective that I've come at it from. And of course being here you realize that uh, you've got to much more interesting background uh, than just making – I don't mean that in a negative way. No, I get it. Like, uh, you know, know, from your your training in Germany and your mixed focus here of brewing both lagers and brewing Hazy IPA, Mm -hmm. coming at these styles that are considered more trendy but doing it with the kind of discipline that somebody trained at VLB in Berlin might bring to it, it's kind of fascinating. Well,
1: I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to talk to you about it.
0: <laughs> so we're going to talk about that in particular, uh, you know, tech, taking a technical approach to brewing hazy and juicy IPA. We'll probably talk about some lager there, too, because be good. you've put your own last name on your hellest, uh Fritz <laughs> lager. And uh, I don't know. You know, I think there's some stuff to talk about there. Anyway, we're going to talk about all of those things. But first, for years... GD Chillers has chilled the beers you love, partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They are proud of the cool partnerships they've built, offering 24 7 service and support. GD builds with non proprietary parts, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. GD's in house engineering crew have been piping breweries, wineries, and distilleries for over 30 years. They offer free piping design and consultation with the sale of every chiller they build. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode sponsored by BSG, exclusive distributors of RAR Malting, producers of quality malt since 1847. Navigating the seas of brewing can be a treacherous affair, so let RAR North Star Pills be your guide. With overtones of honey and sweet bread, flavor and aroma notes of hay and nutty character, RAR North Star Pills is a base malt you can set your compass by. It's great for any beer style, but perfect For a classic lager. Set a course for bsgcraftbring.com to learn how. Travis, we normally start off the podcast talking about you and your history. So, uh, and again, you've got an interesting one. Uh, From a very young age, you wanted to be a brewer. And then uh, you, you you went at it and you followed it and you studied and you uh, came out with a brewing degree. Uh, talk to me about that. Talk to me about uh, where you went from there.
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I you know I I kind of came at brewing from a, a particular I guess maybe midwestern perspective, in that I was studying to be a, a secondary education teacher, um, and and paying my way through college. Um, uh, with a little bit of help from my parents. My mom had just graduated college. Student teaching at the university I was attending went from a semester to a year. And I couldn't afford it. Um, and uh, my German professor in college was married to my German teacher in high school. This is going somewhere, I promise. Hey. And, um, and he suggested, you know, man, if you, if you can't afford it and you've got a little cash saved up, which I did because I had a demolition commercial demolition business um, that had started with a couple of friends. Uh, and I was working in college. Uh, if you have a little bit of extra cash, you might look to go to university in Germany. I did. To be completely frank, I wasn't qualified to attend any, <laughs> really. And um, and it was just a really complicated process. But at that time, the VLB had um, instituted um, some, I think this was the second year where the VLB had done a mixed program where some was an international program and some was a tr- traditional German program. So there's a little bit of fast track program and a little bit of the older, longer program. And what it really meant was that you didn't have the same apprenticeship requirements. Um, that, program ha- that program has changed and now become a completely international program. There's a lot of changes that have been made to it. Um, but in any event, it wasn't particularly expensive. Um, it was available. It was in Germany. I spoke German. I'd been an exchange student in Munich when I was a teenager. Um, and so it seemed like a really good opportunity because I was 20 years old and I didn't know any better. So once I was there, that's a great time (laughs) to make that decision in your life, (laughs) 20 years old. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But
1: I guess the kind of, it's not uniquely Midwestern, but the kind of stereotypically Midwestern part was once I was there, I was like, well, this is my life now, you know? And so let's figure out how to make it work. Um, and and all the you know the great, but to professors. get into a brewing program at the age of twenty,
0: yeah. And to have that kind of, I mean, that's again, that's a that's early and you know, uh, yeah. kind of on the front end. Like a lot yeah. of people, before you can legally drink in the United States, aren't thinking, "Hey, I'm going to become a professional brewer and follow this career path." It's
1: maybe one of those times when the difference between you know bravery and and cowardice is really just young stupidity. You know what I mean? So um, I'd made the you know I'd spent the money. I was there in Germany, and I thought, well, there's you know. I don't really know anything about this uh, beyond having drank some craft beers. And my uncle was a craft beer fan who lived in Fort Collins. Um, so for him, it was, uh, oh, shoot. What it was The big one. Fat in tire. Bay. Not fat tire. Belgium. Odell. Odell. Yeah. yeah it was uh, yeah. Odell. The 90 shilling was his beer. 90 shilling. He yeah. Bring back growlers and stuff. And so I was aware that it was a thing. And Bell's was obviously happening here sure. then. Um, but here in Michigan, it wasn't it pretty much crested and fallen by 2001 the craft mm-hmm. beer industry we thought right. <laughs> sure so, sure um my th- i
0: remember this and it's weird to think about like I, I you know in fact i actually mentioned that in one of, one of my editor's notes and joe our managing editor questioned me on that it's like did that really happen and like I mean, that was kind of our perception of it Big right time. that yeah. the mid to late 90s things were growing 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 and then like all of a sudden a lot of places you know were going out of business yeah. like they just Yeah. It felt like there was a reset back then. And I think when I especially look at that now, that reset and the kind of used equipment that I put out on the market started actually setting the stage for the late 2000s as that next generation, especially 2007, 2008. And that when that, you know, the recession came at that point, like all of a sudden there was the stuff, the stuff was there and it was ready for people to like, you know, just, just, they'd been laid off like, Hey, you know, I need something to do and now I can get this equipment that's cheap. Anyway. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a really important point. And, yeah. and uh, you know, here in Michigan particularly, it's 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 writ as, as large as Michigan's going to write it, right? Which right. was, you know, this is when sort of that early aughts, I guess, is when we see founders really rise to prominence, yeah. right? Um, and the story about them being so frustrated and, and having kind of s- started about when the craft beer sort of, craze of the 90s started here. Um, you know, they'd all watched whatever Drew Carey have his buzz beer on his show, if anybody remembers. And then um, deciding that instead of making what distributors wanted him to make or what everyone thought people would buy, they just kind of make whatever they wanted. Um, and then at least here in Michigan, and I, I really think all over the U.S., that became kind of the craft beer ethic. Um, and I think there are a lot of forces that caused that, you know, what we call it a crash, I guess and it looks to me like it's maybe you know we're 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 maybe entering that position again in the in the cycle of craft beer here in Michigan at least um and so all of those lessons become really interesting we think and talk about them all the time now
0: yeah yeah it is interesting just you know there is some natural cyclical nature to this their growth periods their contraction periods you know and it is also important to like it's not, none of it is the end of the world right. and all of these things. <laughs> strangely enough can have ways of seeding a new generation of that. Again, Absolutely. if I come back to my ska years, I mean, we're probably the fifth wave of ska by this time. I mean, <laughs> I, I was in it in the third wave of ska and uh, you know, but somehow like the fans stay the same age, yes. Even as the new generations of Scott continue, anyway, yeah, um, you, you know, it's all just to say that you know this this too will pass, yeah, and uh, there will be something else. Anyway, yeah, interesting that uh, you know <laughs> you got in at this time, yeah, and uh, you know so after VLB, where did uh, where did your career take you?
1: So uh, after VLB, I, I did knock around Northern Europe for a little while, taking odd jobs and, and sort of being a sounds quasi. great, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and being a kind of quasi apprentice, and then came back here, but not long. And then came back here and uh, got a job. I think my first job was at a Michigan brewing company, um, which is near here. It's about seven miles from where we're sitting right now. Uh, Dan Rogers was the brewmaster there, um, who I I don't know if folks outside of Michigan know who Dan is. But um, he was brewing in Las Vegas in the early 90s at a place called Spotted Cow. Um, Spotted Cow? I remember Spotted Cow. Yeah, yeah. I went to Spotted Cow probably in
0: 1995 when I was on tour that summer with uh I, I, long story i was in salt i went out to salt lake city yeah rented a room from the lead singer of a ska band insatiable jeff evans and uh you know when they would go on little mini tours yes i would just I you know like oh i'll go take off for a week right. and go run around <laughs> with you guys uh you know and so yeah we i, I we definitely drank some beers and spotted cow back then
1: i i dan also was a trained chef Um, And apparently that's how, that was his genesis as a brewer was there was, he was in a restaurant that was connected to the Spotted Cow as the chef. um, I had a t-shirt from
0: Spotted Cow that I used to wear all the time because I was trying to rep, you know, craft beer way back in the day. Anyway. But this is
1: also when like there were whatever, a hundred craft breweries, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So he, uh, so he, he really attacked beer from both an analytical and scientific perspective and also from his already established, I think, culinary perspective, which is normal now, but at the time was a revelation to me, particularly coming from Germany where it, it, it's, it wasn't like that. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, learning from Dan was great, um, and, and invaluable. And I think I I use those lessons 20 some years later, but, um, you know, one of the, one of the kind of uh, turning points in my career happened there as well when um, the owner of Michigan Brewing Company purchased the Cellis brand. Um, the Cellis brand had been bought by Miller, the brewery had been decommissioned, um, and the brand kind of existed without a place to, to be brewed from. Um, and again, it was purchased in, uh, in Weberville. And so Pierre Sellis and John-Luc Seiss you know, I, I, if, I, I'm i sure everybody listening to the podcast knows, but Pierre Sellis started Garden uh, Jean-Luc Seiss was responsible for most of the unibrew recipes. So Trois Pistoles, La Fin de Monde. Um, and uh, they were in their late 70s. And I was like 21, 22, 23. And um, I was, you know, they, they, they were unsure about the purchase of this brand uh, by a small brewery in a small town in the middle of Michigan. And I think rightly so. And sure, so, sure. Um, in order, to, I think, to protect the name, um, they came physically to the brewery and lived in, in Milan, which isn't far, um, and worked every day at the brewery. And I became just kind of their assistant. Um, and I was very excited to be their assistant. Sure, sure, Um, So sitting at the knee, I mean, and they were so sweet and they were so helpful and they were just, it was like your grandpa. It really was. And um, so, you know, Belgian beer wasn't something that I would spent any time thinking about beyond what I was trained to do uh, with regard to Belgian beer, ultimately, which was that's not real beer. Right. <laughs> um, right. Spoken like a German. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and all of the things that have to do with Belgian beer right. run completely counter to, to the idea of industrial brewing of Pilsner, which is ultimately what we learned in Germany. Yeah. Um, to be tradesmen, essentially. And uh, and so all of these ideas and, and all of these things that that Pierre and Jean-Luc had spent years thinking about and, 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 and executing um, were just there for me to learn. Um, and so I did. And, th- and that was a, that, again, that was a fantastic entry into Belgian beer that I just got because I was in the right place at the right time, much like I got to the VLB in the first place. And that ultimately will be a, a pretty common thread throughout the rest of this interview. I think.
0: <laughs> Man, what a fun charmed uh, ex- yeah. beer experience through that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. sticking
1: through with owners who were, you know, assholes and not giving up <laughs> yeah. because you knew sure. you were getting something valuable out of it. And yeah, that kind of perseverance is really important too. That's
0: that's always a big part of it. Right. Just fast forward me up to sure. the, the point where you uh, you opened up Old Nation. Imagine there's you know you've been working professionally now for twenty plus years. Yeah, I'm sure there's a whole string. of... Of places in the meantime, um, yeah. but what led you to to decide to to launch Old Nation?
1: Well, um, my uh, my my business partner Rick and I um, ha- had met at the Detroit Beer Company, which is a pub in downtown Detroit, um, and we had flirted with the idea of kind of dipping our toe into the water. So we did a great deal of kind of I think what's now called vagabond brewing, where I would go from brewery to brewery. Um, I went back to Michigan Brewing Company for a while, and I was brewing. Lacquer.
0: Vagabond Brewing. I like that yeah. term. That's a much better one than the G word. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, what? and we won't use the G word. <laughs> okay, um,
1: because that is that has some pejorative. Uh, uh, oh yeah, I get. Now I understand. It. So yeah, it's Roman now. I think I like vagabond. Yeah. I think that's a great way to describe <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, and so these were breweries that had space, which means that these yeah. were generally breweries that were having some trouble. Um, and so, uh, you know, the I would ostensibly and 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 would try uh, with great effort to go in there and help them to make their beers, and in exchange would essentially make whatever lager I was making. So pilsner, um, uh, which was called the Detroit Lager, that won some great American Beer Festival medals, and um, an alt beer called the Detroit Door from wearing that shirt right now, um, and, and and a couple others. We worked with a chocolate company here in Michigan and, and made those beers, but that was a great opportunity. It was a great technical opportunity, right, because we're, we're using different systems, we're using different staffs, um, and I had the latitude to, to be in charge of, of that. We're also using different water sources and quite often different raw materials within a year. Um, and so all of those things that you would do in a normal production brewery we were doing, um, it just wasn't ours. Um, And so that experience was enough and we sold enough of that beer for Rick to kind of say, "Okay, we'll stop dipping our toe in and let's invest in Old Nation. Um, And uh, so in 2015, we opened up Old Nation with the firm idea that what we were going to do here was what we were capable of doing, which is ultimately through the connections that we had made through Detroit Brewing Company in that vagabond period exploiting those opportunities to the extent that we could in, you know, chain retail and with distributors and coming right out of the gate with five brands and just having them on the shelf as soon as we started, which we did. Making a production brewery Making in, a,
0: in 2015. Yeah. But going at it specifically to be a production brewery. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a bold strategy, but only one that somebody who had spent 15 years before that in yeah. the industry could really pull off.
1: Well, and again, I think, you know, I never I'd maybe a lot of the youthful arrogance never really wore off. Um, a lot of it has now <laughs> we've, we've gotten, we've gotten beat it's up. It's working bit. for you. Right. So uh, <laughs> lean, in, lean into it. Right. So the idea though of old nation and, and really the genesis of the name too, between Nate, my brewing partner and I, um, who is, you know, I, t- I maybe even twice the brewer I am, he, he went to UC Davis and, 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 graduated from there in their brewing program. Um, you know, we'd been working together for, for some eight years at that point point. And uh, we had said, "Look, you know, we see, for example, what Firestone Walker is doing with Pivo pills. Um, we see that you know English beers at the time were were sort of traditional English beers were making a resurgence on the West Coast. Of course, Belgian beers were. There's always this upswelling and undercurrent of Bel- every year is the year of the sour and the year of the Pilsner, right? Even though it never is. And um, and we thought it's well, no longer the year of the right? sour. <laughs> uh, whether it's the year of the Pilsner, I mean, <laughs> right. it's, the verdict's still <laughs> out on that, <laughs> right? So." Um, you know, or just Belgian beer. So we've been kind right, of exploring right. that. And uh, and Nate and I have been doing that for a long time in a bunch of different breweries. And so we thought, okay, great. What we're going to do is what we're good at. We're going to make, you know, kind of technical production beers and examples of, of these production beers from these different places that we're really comfortable with. Um, and because all of this is happening on the East and West Coast, you know, Michigan's going to catch up to it. No, it's no problem, right? And we were still operating under the same sort of general auspices that everyone else was, which was if you make a beer and the packaging is cool and the beer is solid, you're good, right? You get it on the shelf and you're fine, which didn't happen. So um, we, uh, we put the five beers out. There was like a, a drier English stout and, and the Detroit Dwarf and alt beer. And I think there was a Dunkel Weizenbach or a Weizenbach and uh, I think a pale ale that we made with Michigan House, whatever it was. It was kind of just basic. And um, they were all very good and the packaging was cool and we put them out and we waited and waited for them to sell and they just never did. And, uh, now we're, you know, we opened in June of 2015 and, and, and at the point I'm telling you about right now is probably February of 2016 and we were terrified, right? We, everything had changed it felt like to us. Um, and so how to navigate that was difficult. Um, and I think like a lot of production brewers at that time, um, you know, I didn't spend any time online in beer forums listening to what, you know, beer geeks were talking about because, you know, for us. Because you you're do, a grown up. And, right. yeah. <laughs> well, and also, man, I'm not trying to just go online and get kicked in the balls. Right. Um, and, I, and, I think and you know,
0: that, that, that element of beer geekdom was still it's still a very small percentage. Yes. Of the overall beer, it's a very vocal. Yeah, it's one that everyone
1: looks to and it's right.
0: and, and loud. Yeah. Right, but also pretty small compared to the
1: overall consumer base. Well, that's what I found. Right. Yeah. Um. And so around then, uh, the idea was, well, obviously, I don't know what people want. Right. I've I've made these very good beers, and uh, to no effect. <laughs> and um, what what is it that they do want? Um. And and of course, I went on these forums, and what they wanted was barrel aged stouts with any number of things that make it not taste like beer, which I didn't like or didn't really, I'd done and I just didn't, whatever. You know what I mean? It seemed like tricks and I just didn't like it. Um, And then, uh, you know, presently, I think, you know, probably around that time or maybe in the spring of 2016, people started talking about hazy IPAs. Okay, well, I'd heard of these and I'd seen pictures. And Nate, who is a lot more progressive in terms of his perspective on the industry than I am, was like, look, these seem interesting to me. I'm not really sure what the point is, and we hadn't had any yet. We hadn't tasted any, um, but you know, this is what people are writing about them, and and let's try and figure them out. So we did, and um, we kind of reverse engineered based on what people were writing a recipe for what we thought was going to get pretty close to a kind of a heady topper, um, and it was good. Uh, later, we found out it was pretty close to heady topper. Um, but at that time, there was so much interest in New England IPA that that wasn't the New England IPA that people were looking for. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, the one they were looking for was like, wait, well, it's got to look like Trillium It's got to look like turkey gravy. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we both were still in the mindset that I think a lot of brewers are in now. of Like, man, I'm not going to, this young bullshit cheese out. You know <laughs> what I mean? Sure. I'm not going to do this. You were this. trained in Berlin and right. you weren't going to make yeah, that Yeah, I'm beer. not going to make this lazy sure. beers. Sure. You know what I mean? Fuck this beer and fuck people who like it too, man. This is ridiculous, right? And then we still weren't selling any beer. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we got together and, and, and I engaged with this craft beer enthusiast group uh, in Detroit um, or greater Detroit and um, started talking to them. And, and they, there was a thread about New England IPA and there was a lot of voodoo in it. You know, and people are putting wheat flour in it or. Whatever. Sure. And, sure. Straight uh, pectin or whatever that was. Well, yeah, yeah. whatever. Or it's only, you know, it's a six day old beer or whatever It was a lot of dudes just kind of assuming, you know. Yes. And we a lot had done of the the, misinformation or, out there for sure. Right. And we had done a fair amount of research by this time. And so I engaged with these guys. She'd and, already
0: worked with Pierre Sellis and understood how to make uh, yeah, yeah, whip make, beer.
1: Make whip beer. And I'm so, telling you that's what we did. So you understood haze stability, you understood of all of these pieces there. One hundred percent. Oh. But there was this moment what right? a great way
0: to pull this. <laughs> All together, <laughs> right?
1: Travis, I want to let's talk more about this. But okay. first,
0: uh, what is AccuBrew? It's an analytical tool designed to collect and compare the information you need to refine your fermentation process by tracking your sugar conversion, clarity, and temperature in every batch. But why do you need AccuBrew? AccuBrew is more than a glorified speedometer. AccuBrew is an ever-evolving tool tailored to you your process, and your business. Save time, protect your schedule, and detect problems before they happen. Quality, consistency, and confidence, that's what AccuBrew delivers. Also, ProBrew, they believe that your brewery deserves equipment as unique as the drinks that you craft. That's why their solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer not someone else's from brewing to fermenting to carbonating and can filling pro brews, customizable equipment empowers breweries to expand operations at their own pace. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Pro brew brew your Beer And scheduling freight carriers should be the last thing on a brewer's mind, so why not trust the experts to handle freight for your ingredients? Old Orchard is partnered with a leading logistics firm in the craft beverage industry to transport your flavored craft concentrate blends. When you order two pails or more from Old Orchard, you qualify for freight quotes. To get started, head on over to oldorchard.com brewer. All right. So now, now you pull in this kind of technical background, you pull in this experience making whipped beer, right? You find all of these folks that are like, I wish we had some source to make this in a good way <laughs> right. so that I didn't have to trade with these crazy trading partners on the East coast, Absolutely. which is exactly the story that happened everywhere right. circa 2016. I mean, it was the reason why I gave beers to some of my brewer friends in Colorado and yes. like, you should make one of these. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and then of course they did. And some, and some of those are foundational brands. And Absolutely. And I just, I'm not trying to claim credit because those brewers went on to make those great beers, um, you know, but some of that, like, push, like, hey, hey, ma- try-, try making some of this. Right. You know, so so how do you approach it then? So,
1: exactly as you said, really. Uh, so, the foundation of it was, well, in, in any event, the, the craft beer uh, folks had come out to make a batch with us, Right. We had made a batch that was largely like the first batch we made um, and a 40 barrel batch, which I had to eat half of, which was terrible. But in any event, I made it for him and I said, look, this is how we made it. This is how we understand this to be. But still at the time, we were kind of pushing back on the idea of haze, right? It's not, it's not necessary, right? It's, it's, it's not a functional part of it. You can this. make it juicy without all of that. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. And why would, why would one want that in the first place? Yeah. Right? And uh, in, the, in the context of an IPA. And uh, one of these guys, actually a few of these guys brought in uh, examples of Treehouse and Trillium and we tasted them and we were like, oh God. Okay. Okay. Like I get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand it. Right. And we get it. Right. Um, and, and ultimately what we knew, Nate, probably first, and then myself was, you know, look, this is about, ultimately this is about oats. Right. It's also about disco hops and whatever, but making the beer is about, uh, largely is revolving for us around oats. And and that's where we need to be looking. Um, and so we did. We, anyway, we made this batch of beer. It was not as hazy as these guys wanted. And the response was like, thanks, right? That cool. Let's move on to the next thing. <laughs> and um, I was like, wait a minute. what? We, it's great, right? What do you want? And they're, you know, well, it doesn't look and it's not the feel. And so we tasted some more from different breweries and we we're like, you know what? They're right. This is, they're right. Um, and so we made some adjustments in, um, in, in the amount of oats that we were using and the type of, of, of oat that we were, that we were using and buying in, um, in addition to, uh, some changes in terms of when we were dry hopping. And we had also read a paper at that time that was written by Sapporo, um, that was specifically written to prevent, uh, biotransformation during fermentation. And so we were just like, well, what happens if we didn't want to prevent it? Right. Right. (laughs) Sort of extrapolated that. We now feel like the idea of biotransformation is probably not that important to these beers. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the time, the accident that came out of that was us understanding that the, the the lipids that are coming from oats ultimately were crucial to the mouthfeel of the beer, right? It wasn't just calcium, you know, calcium additions. It wasn't just, you know, oat for silkiness. It really had something to do. That is to say, the silkiness of oats we felt like was coming not just from protein but also from lipids. And the bonding of these lipids across what we thought might have been um, uh, a, a, a protein bridge um, was where this more sort of semi-permanent haze was coming from. Anyway, what we did was we fucked around a bunch and we finally, sort of after about three tries, we found what is now M43. Um, and everybody was super jacked about it. And I was jacked that I wasn't just trying to send, sell seven barrels to 11 beer geeks that came out here to Williamston. Um, and so we began to ramp up production. We had one of, again, this is another kind of happy accident or or dumb luck or whatever. What we had was a brewery that was built to make 10,000 barrels of beer per year minimum, um, that didn't have a performing product coming out of it. Um, so, we had all this space to scale and all this equipment to scale. And, you know, Marcus, uh, who is here in the brewery as uh, our packaging manager now and really the shop manager, had been working in breweries and building packaging equipment since he was a little kid. His dad did that job. Um, and so, we had all this skill with nothing to do and all this space with nothing to fill it. Um, and so, when M43 hit, we were like, fucking great, man. We just started making it like gangbusters and packaging it as fast as we could um and uh that was the beginning of what is m43 now i think er, and certainly m43 now but even old nation and it took us two or three years of being known and, and and building up enough steam making new england ipas before we dipped our toe back in the water traditional beers which we're really excited about that's really interesting and,
0: and you were one of the first to actually be able to kind of distribute hazy IPA in this kind of multi-state format partially because you had already kind of designed this business to be a distribution, you know, production focused brewery. Um, you know, but you also figured out how to scale hazy IPA and be able to do that. Now, you know, that's not necessarily an easy task, especially, I mean, We're oversimplifying this whole process because there's a lot to it also. (laughs) But simply being able to scale up in terms of getting the hops you will now need, which are a whole different selection of hops compared to the hops that you might have had worked out for some of these things that you Uh, thought were going to be the brands for you. (laughs) Making a quick pivot there and figuring out how to get a volume of hops and then being able to grow that distribution. I mean, all sorts of interesting business stuff. Let's not talk about that business piece because you know it's all there. Sure, you know, there's something to it, but then you know, but what I'm really, you know, I'm interested in you know this kind of you know process around the beer itself. Yeah, and you know, and so you know, were there other things that you learned in that development of M43 in terms of you know the way that hops interact with this kind of you know malt and wheat or oat lipid base. um, you know that that started feeding into this. Well, you know, let's talk about some of the learning that came along with it. And some of that that has also happened since then, you know, around this, you know, because it's a complex system in the way that all of these things work together. It seems so simple, yeah. but then as you really start breaking into it, it's like, it's, there's a lot going on there.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that, that I hear brewers and particularly home brewers, but, but brewers generally talk about with regard to this beer, um, is, is yeast. Um, yeast plays a pivotal role in this beer, as it does with many beers, of course. Um, and is this a London Ale 3 kind of variant we, yeast? Yeah, we use London Ale 3. Yeah, great. Um, and, um, you know, I think that, you know, for, for us, we're using that yeast largely because it's a significant um, glycerol producer. Um, and that's, that's very helpful for the mouthfeel of the beer. Um, and also, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of phenolic, uh, you know, the phenolics it's kicking off and its peachiness uh, is, is important to the beers as well. Um, but that's what's important about the yeast to, to the beer. Um, and, and again, we, we still hear people talk a lot about biotransformation. And I, I think this is something that it's an, it's an interesting word for people to use. Um, and, and there's something there, right? There's, there, there is something that's happening when you're, when you're, when you're starting with a bunch of geraniol and linalool or whatever, and you're ending up with a little bit more citronella. I think, I think there is something there. Um, but we're using citra like everybody else does, which has a shit ton of citronella in it anyway. So it doesn't really... Right. Yeah. Um, it really, it was. We're just skipping ahead. We're yeah. Skip past this whole transformation <laughs> right. process. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. we're, we're doing it. I mean, we're still to this day behaving as though it is an important part of the process. Right. Yeah. Um, but we've made other offshoots just as experiments to, to see if it is, maybe it is. Right. Um, it's, that's a difficult thing to quantify because it's subjective. We're talking about flavor, right? And we don't have the kind of lab to analyze if there's been conversion from geraniol to citronel. Um, but ultimately, um, we will figure that out. Once we get to
0: the end of the fermentation process and you tell me what timing your dry hopping happens yeah, for it, yeah, we'll see just how yeah, uh, much yeah, it matters yeah, to you.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we are dry hopping, uh, after full Kroizen Okay. Um, but with that, so you are still dry hopping and during fermentation, but by the way, that's something Nate and I were doing with our West coast IPAs 15 years ago. Right. Um, why just because we had a little bit more contact time and we were largely brewing them in pubs. Yeah. Um, so we could kick out 18 day beers without there being a delay in between them. Um, and, and we, by the way, at that point, were aware that biotransformation was a thing, but again, we just weren't seeing it, right? And if you're pub
0: brewing, you're not necessarily as focused on production, kind of, you know, yeast cropping and no, uh, use and all of that. Yeah. Right.
1: right. I mean, we're going cone to cone a lot, but we're also using 1272 yeah. mostly. Um, I mean, that is to say we use a lot of 1272, right? We're using neutral alias to make yeah. beer for, for people. Um, and so it's, and, and again, it's not that biotransformation doesn't happen. And it's not, I'm sure that there aren't breweries who are Harnessing it to the best of their abilities and making it work for them, um, but for us, again, I think largely because we're we're building these beers quite often around again citra hops or mosaic or significant citronello carriers, that it's just not all that important. But what we do see with regard to haze, particularly, is that if we are dry hopping later, then the haze does seem to be less stable. And we don't know why that is. Um, And and, and again, for us, this revolves around a lot of the kind of understanding and misunderstanding of how high lipid bearing grains behave throughout fermentation, right? You would assume, for example, that if you're using oats, a lot of oats, let's say 50, 60, 70% of oats in a beer, it's a high lipid bearing grain, that you would see a great deal of lipid post-fermentation. And additionally, as a benefit that the, you know, your, your cell membranes around your yeast, and therefore the yeast cells themselves would be very healthy and much more stable and able to go, you know, maybe more generations than you would normally do in a production setting. Um, But we found that to not be true. We found the opposite to be true. Um, That a lot of that is maybe being sort of digested by the yeast. A lot of that is maybe dropping out during fermentation. Um, And we're not seeing any visible change in terms of cell death or mutation through generations but we wouldn't anyway because we we can't really stretch this London ale yeast much past two generations and still achieve that haziness. One of the first things to go if we try is that we we lose that semi-permanent hazy. Two
0: generations and you lose the haze.
1: Um you should go back and listen to the
0: podcast I did with Joe and Lauren Grimm, uh, you know, from from Brooklyn. Uh they're on generation 250.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there are ways
0: to do it. And it's fascinating. I mean, obviously they're, they're top cropping and, uh, you know, their use handling is, uh, is helping do that. Top cropping is going to make the difference. Yeah. Total, there's some fascinating stuff going on there too. Uh, (laughs) nonetheless, sorry to, I don't mean to be
1: self-promotional. I did work with ring ringwood for a couple of years. (laughs) Okay. Um, and so yeah. top cropping in that whole sure, thing is sure, very familiar sure. to me yeah but um oh, ringwood yeast yeah I hate it so yeah. much yeah, well everyone does, right? so. um, consumers especially hate consumers it. especially yeah. hate it yeah yeah let's make another gold nail with ringwood it's a genius yeah. idea yeah um, but uh, you know I so we we're we're a, and by the way when I'm talking about first second generation, You know, I am sometimes talking about, you know, acid washing the yeast and kind of resurrecting it. It's not always a a brand new batch. Um, But there's something to do with, I guess my point here is that cone to cone transfers are not working to make this beer for us with that yeast. Yeah, Yeah. And because we have all enclosed fermentation vessels because this brewery was built to make traditional beer, this is the way we have to do it in order to make the beer that we want to make. Um, and that can be more expensive, I suppose. But, you know, again, we're, we're always kind of circling back to what the beer is and how how it's coming across. Too. Yeah, and For us, that's important. Let's. I want to talk about
0: grain for a little bit, because you, you talk about oats, but then, you know, I'm, I'm curious where base malt fits into this, you know, yeah. for you in the picture. And I should say, we'll talk about it. I mean, it's M43, but it's also, you You brew a whole slew of beers in this kind of family. Yeah. I, you poured for me a triple IPA, which I'll say, I don't think another brewer, yeah. as I sit down for a podcast, has poured me a triple IPA before, um, you know, because it's just generally not what... Well, you it, I, listen, I was going to pour you a Hellas. You said you blew through it last I, I, night. I had some pal- Hellas, <laughs> yesterday I stopped through here yesterday, and uh, yeah, anyway. Um, but the you know, your the triple I, IPA was fantastic, hey, and we'll, we'll talk about it in this kind of broad yeah. family. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup two on Rogue Brewing's pilot brew house to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS BrewTech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, 100% recycled, 100% recyclable, and reusable pack tech handles are the sustainable solution to handle your craft beer pack tech has been a leading producer of secondary packaging for the craft beer industry for over 30 years. And their handles are found across the globe by fully embracing the principles of circular economy PackTech helps customers meet their own ambitious sustainable goals. 100% recycled 100% recyclable and reusable PackTech is a sustainable packaging solution for your craft beer. Order your free samples today. Call 541 461 5000. That's 541 461 5000. And, of course, tell them you heard it here on the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. And Berkeley Yeast, the creators of Tropics Yeast, which produces massive notes of guava and passion fruit, now bring you thiol boost. Berkeley Yeast's thiol boost is pure liquid thiol precursors that take Tropics to the next level. Add it to the fermenter when you pitch the yeast and prepare yourself For Tropical Fruit Nirvana, the concentration of precursors is the same in every batch of Thial Boost, so you can predictably tune the level of tropical flavor by adjusting the dosage. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. Berkeley Yeast, Ordinary Yeast, Made Extraordinary. So yeah, let's talk about uh, this, the rest of this, uh, you know, is there anything else to the way that you build a, you know, a barley malt base to a hazy IPA here?
1: I mean, ultimately we use Pilsner malt. Pilsner malt. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Just to, for the light color.
1: We're using it for the light color. We're using it for a more balanced protein profile because we're also using a lot of wheat. Yeah. Um, and um, we feel like it's, what the malt is offering the, these beers, for us at least, um, is more about the structure upon which the hops rest as opposed to some sort of counterpoint to that flavor. Um, so the more neutral ultimately for us, the malt base is, the better. Um, and, and frankly, the more predictable. And we're both slightly more comfortable using Pilsen malt than we are the pale malt. Um, and there's also less range in terms of, right, you don't have this analysis paralysis, right? Should, right? should I use Maris Otter or, like, it's Pilsner malt, right? Yeah, If it meets the specs, it's good.
0: Yeah, we'll get yeah. the flavor out of the hops. Right, and, uh, The <laughs> right. malt's just here to, to provide, and, you know, that malt, malt will be pretty functional then you know, to give you what you need to, to get where you need to go.
1: And it offers us more versatility in production downstream as well. And you also make some other beers, the Pilsner malt,
0: and 100%. so uh, you know there's some, some <laughs> yeah. practical concerns I mean, there too.
1: A lot of the decisions we make are not romantic. Yeah, right? um, a lot of the decisions we make are colored by the necessity of running a, of operating a brewery this size, and that's that's one of them.
0: Sure, yeah. fair enough. Um, you know, and then so you know we've talked a little bit about fermentation. You know, you're are dry hopping mid fermentation. You know. I imagine hot side is, is pretty minimal and yeah. probably
1: whirlpool focused as it is for everybody. Absolutely. Just like everybody. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're, you know, ultimately the race between, you know, uh, build and, 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 and problems with DMS by leaving hot beer in the whirlpool for too long and, and not being able to cool it down or cooling it down and not get the, getting the oil extraction we need out of the hops is, has been a you know something that we've worked around a lot, and we've heard a lot of people do different things with it, and we I think that's great, but again, we're having to do this as efficiently as possible in a consistent production setting where we're turning you know two three batches a day out of the brew house, and so for us, uh, absolutely, whirlpool editions are important, um, but again, the way that we're looking this, we're looking at the build of this beer is you know at different stations in different parts, right ultimately what's going to come through is what we're dry hopping with right but to add um, you know hops like calypso for example into m43 in the kettle is important to us you know for us it was it was the acknowledgement of biotransformation being a thing in the beginning um and so you know, we're adding that then to the whirlpool. We're allowing a lot of it to blow off in high Kroisen, obviously. Um, and then you know, going back and jamming these um, you know, these these disco hops in the back end of the beer in disco hops. <laughs> yeah. In, in dry hopping, which we've you know, we used to call cascade a disco hop, and obviously it's not. It's just what we call them. Um you know that,
0: now with all these style boosting yeasts, I mean they're disco hops once again. They're Look disco hops that. once again. Yeah. Well, yeah,
1: what can you do? And 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 these style boosting yeasts are really interesting too. It's always interesting when something like this comes out and there's there are there are ideas and there are sort of studied methods to use these things with. but I think like with any job, you know you're gonna bring it into the facility that you work in and you're gonna see what it can really do you know right um and for, with
0: you in your system on your equipment, yeah the fermentation, the fermenter geometries that you have all of those things. Yeah. All of this. Yeah. And,
1: um, and, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not coming from a jaded perspective, but we're always coming from this kind of continental European perspective of, of not really being craft brewers. Right. And so then, I mean, we're really craft brewers, but where we were trained, both Nate, I mean, that's a an Anheuser-Busch school, UC Davis, right. And sure. we're a Carlsberg school at VLB. That's what we're taught to do. Um, and so when we look at these things, we're not really looking at the romance of it. And I know that that bugs some people, but for us, we're looking at, okay, how can we make the product that we want to make given, as you say, the constraints of our system, the constraints of our distributor, the constraints of many distributors occasionally and travel over distance. Let's talk about
0: water. I'll come back and talk about hop blends in in a minute, but I do want to talk about water because I mean, we're in Michigan, you know. Water is, is a thing here, yeah. Of course, I hear it's made national news in some places, <laughs> yes. you know. Water has, yeah, negatively. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it is that, yeah. Um, you know, but for you, you also brew, you know, M43 in, in two different places yeah. this brewery and another one. Yeah, you know, they have different water sources. Water becomes a pretty big, important thing of this. Obviously, we all know how important, uh, you know, water chemistry is, especially when we're talking about hazy IPA and the way that that builds. You know that kind of mouthfeel. Talk to me about about your approach to that and uh, some of the things that you've worked through to to kind of you know sure. dial in water for for the for these hazy beers.
1: Well, initially we were going for a soft beer, so we focused on calcium chloride. Yeah, right? um, the water source that we have here, with regard to additions, the water source we have here in Williamston has, for example, high levels of magnesium. Um, a particular, well, not really high, but on the higher end of calcium sort of sulfate, you know, we found that, you know, and, it, and a generous addition, addition of calcium chloride here was enough to get us where we needed to go. But brewing in Detroit was an interesting challenge for us because, you know, counter to what a lot of people think, um, Detroit water is fantastic for brewing. Um, people are, of course, familiar with Stroh's Brewing Company, which was built around Detroit, Detroit water. Um, and so we thought this is, this is great, right? We've seen the specs on Detroit water. All we've got to do is build it up. Um, couldn't be easier, right? Going from one brewery to another. Particularly when we're not, we're, we're not trying to take anything out of the water, right? Um, so we go down to Detroit, we start making this beer, M43, and it's great, but it's wrong. And there's nothing we missed, right? As, 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 as a lot of brewers do, we have a great relationship with our local water treatment facility. Um, and effluent treatment as well. Um, so we went to them and- uh, As most
0: brewers do. Yeah. I would say
1: most brewers have a love-hate relationship yeah. well, with their shouldn't. local water authority. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> shouldn't, you know? They're just doing their job, man. Um, sure, these, sure. are, these are people that are that are just trying to get through the day and, and they'll give you information that you want. Um, I think quite often brewers will go in and, and try and, and, and blow these people's mind with what they're doing to, for beer, right? And these people could give no shits about that, right? They're trying to make good water for the kids in town to drink. Yeah, um, And so you get what you get, right? Yeah. Um, and and of course, these, you know, what I've heard a lot is, is people complaining that they won't change the water to be better for brewing. And it's like, look, dude, you put your brewery there, you should have known, right? So we do have a good relationship with our people. And, you know, we went down and we, and we talked to Lou at the water treatment facility, and we we're 100% dialed in to what their water is, right? We take it to MSU, Michigan State University here. We have it analyzed, and we make sure that we know we do. Um, and so we go to Detroit, and we build that water up to mimic Williamson water, and we make an M, a batch M43, and it is, again, great, but wrong. What's wrong with it? Well, it's not as acidic. Well, bullshit. It's at 4.4. where where That's where we put this beer. That's where any German brewer would put any beer they make. Um, and so, you know, what is the problem? So we go back to Lou and say, listen, man, I, you know, all the work you did, we appreciate it so much. Something is still missing, right? Do you, is there anything else you do to this water? No, not really. Do you buffer the water, for example, for pH? Oh yeah, sure. We do that all the time. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Does all the time mean Tuesdays and Thursdays or like you always do it? Oh, we always do it. What do you use? baking soda. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So we, you know, we, we go back and we kind of analyze what he's doing. We mimic it in Detroit by adding functionally baking soda to the kettle. And sure enough, we're having to make more acid additions to get, you know, our terminal pH to to four, four in the, in the, in the fermenter. But that becomes part of the flavor. Um, and, and, and we didn't really, I mean, we knew that we were having to back add a fair amount of of citric acid and lactic acid to get where we needed to go here in Williamston. But I guess we just never really considered too much how that we considered how it played into the flavor, but we had to build this beer so fast that we were just kind of like, well, you know, that's what M43 out of Williamston tastes like and um, having that the opportunity to, to to rebuild that beer in detroit and make it exactly the same and, and by those means was something i never thought i would do and it was fantastic and it works yeah right yeah
0: for four four that's you know that's fairly acidic for uh you know for uh, the current generation of hazy yeah. of ips especially given that <laughs> you know that dry hopping process right. is going to raise you know your ph at the very end of that and well, so you yeah. have to then you know, shoot lower knowing that it's going to, to bump things up in that last part of the process.
1: Well, and again, for Nate and I coming from where we came from, this is about, this is one of, you know, in addition to hops and any number of other things, one of the things we're doing to biologically stabilize the beer that we're putting out. Yeah. So if we're putting out a Pilsner in Germany or in the United States, four, four is about what we're looking for. Right. For that reason, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, So that it's food safe. So that, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. More, more or less. Right. Um, it's it's helpful. Right? It's not going to solve big problems, but yeah. it certainly does help the shelf life a little bit. And I think a lot of a lot of folks know that. And so, in any event, we uh, we we made these changes, and 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 ultimately, water was important. But I guess it's less that we weren't aware of our water and what we were doing with it, and more that our philosophy has always been: you put your brewery where it is, and you use the water that you get. Right, right. That that has always historically been. A, I mean, look at. What is the difference between Pilsner and Hellas and Export? And uh, the list goes on, right? Ultimately, that's brewers brewing around their water source, right? There are a lot of really interesting stories about, you know, people post-Hanseatic League, you know, doing cloak and dagger, yeast theft and stuff. And those are great stories. But largely, those beers are built around the water source that those brewers find themselves just having. All of those traditional beers are. English beers are too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Water, I. Water
0: than the local agricultural products you know, that, that people would brew with because, you know, transportation you know, it was so much more limited, uh, and much more expensive, you know, and it's like, that's the terroir, right? That's, right. that's the thing that feeds into it's the reason we have styles is right. because of all of these limitations right. historically. And that uh, made more sense to, to brew with what you had locally.
1: Absolutely. And, and no, neither Nate or myself would ever say that anyone's wrong to bring their water back down to H3O or H3O negative. Right. That's, that's what Anheuser-Busch does. We get it. We get why. Um, And and I think anyone can do that. And it's a really important dimension of beer. And even if you don't do it, if you even only do it for your own edification, it's great. Um, But for us, again, this is is a nod to tradition. Yeah.
0: How does that lower acidity, you know, impact uh, hop expression in the beers? You know, because... uh, You know, it it can seem like a small thing going from four seven to four six to four five to four four. You know, but they're big but the big steps, you know, all along the way. You know, you know, at that point, you know, from your perspective, and I imagine you you know, you've tried some of these things over the years, like, you know, what is what is that you know, how does that impact things and how does does that change at all the way you know, the hops that you
1: use or the way that you, uh, you know, use those hops? It does. I mean, ultimately the the, the big idea, the non-specific idea yeah, um, was, you know, the way that Nate and I build these beers, which is ultimately what is the expression of this beer at the end of the day, right? And the expression of these New England IPAs as we understood them when we began to develop M43 was that they were focused on tropical fruit, right? We have made Shandies and radlers and whatever, Right. You hear a lot about people saying, well, this lemon beer specifically, this lemon beer tastes like lemon pledge, right? When in fact, the aroma that you're getting off that beer is great and relatively yeah. authentic. And the flavor that you're getting is actually pretty lemony too. But what's confusing about it is that the acidity isn't present, right? So the disconnect between your palate and what your brain expects is immense. And the, you know, the expression of that that people are used to is lemon pledge, right? Because you're not experiencing any acidity. You're just experiencing the aroma. Yeah, um, And so for us, because we were trying to express prop- tropical fruits in this beer, our first thought was, let's make sure that the acidity is there so that it's not confusing. This has put us at, you know, again, in, in a lot of in a lot of the times when people talk about M43, they'll say, well, it's not, you know, it's not like these larger breweries or, yeah. or more sort of older breweries that are making these beers. And that's true for us. What we're looking for is balance. So there has to be some bitterness. Right. Not a lot. But there has to be just enough to balance the product, right, and create the snap that you need at the end. And it's the same thing with pH. So for us, ultimately, the idea revolving around pH was about acidity. How the hops express themselves is, I think, how a lot of folks would imagine in that. And and again, I'm not, uh, you know, certainly uh, worldly or educated enough to, to know this exactly. But I, I do think that... Um, the hops may or may not objectively express themselves differently but the perception of those hops is certainly buoyed by the acidity that is in the finished product and so the the drinker's perception of those hops then becomes more nuanced because it's more familiar and and a lot of that just comes in these really basic food science principles i know it is and i think we
0: see the same kind of thing in the fruited quick sour world where yes. you know so many brewers tying in the pH, you know, and acidity in those beers to the acidity in in that, the fruit that it is is shooting for or that it includes, right? You know, you can include all of this these berries, but if it doesn't hit a similar acidity level to what people expect who eat those berries in yeah. the way that they consume them eating, then they won't appear berry like. Yeah. You know, it'll it's flannel. It's confusing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and so finding ways. It's interesting to also think about this in terms of hazy IPA of keeping that acidity. In a place that it helps support the, fla- the fruit flavors yeah. of that those hops themselves,
1: right? And and again, I'll tell you that we've explored this to the extent that we understand that the perception is improved, but I couldn't objectively tell you what it is doing to the hops. Right? Sure,
0: sure. Well, let's quickly talk about hop combos. Uh, you know, you you mentioned Citra being a heavy lifter for Ooh. you. Are there any other hops that uh, you find yourself going to? You mentioned Calypso earlier, and yeah. that's a it's a little bit of a left field selection yeah. for this. Are there any others that that you find work really well combining with uh, that kind of core heavy lift of Citra? Sure,
1: and, and I think this this won't be news to anyone, right? I yeah. mean, you know, Mosaic, Amarillo, you know, right? You you have the the sort of any hop that, and even you know. Uh, uh, Vic Secret, Nelson, and, and all those different hops will work, right? Because yeah. ultimately, they're, they're 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 fruity hops, um, and and so I think that you know you can open up any magazine or talk to any homebrewer about which hops would be layups for this kind of beer. Um, but when we talk about Calypso, and even you know, for example, we have the ability to use a lot of uh, Michigan-grown hops that are traditionally West Coast hops, and particularly Chinook is one of them. Um, so we love playing around with Michigan crystal and Michigan Chinook, particularly for these beers, because whatever terroir is doing or growing season or, you know, amount of sunlight or whatever to these, uh, hot plants as they grow is taking, you know, I think Chinook is a great example is taking the, the spruce, right. The heavy pine that's in Chinook grown on the West coast and sort of, um, sort of sublimating that into just a little hint of turpentine at the back end, like you would find in mango, which is the rest of the flavor that's expressed by that hop, the Michigan Grunch Nug. Yeah. And so for us, after having used that particular hop for that reason in one of these beers— the search for these really subtle notes underneath all of that tropical fruit to support or subvert the way that those aromas and flavors are expressed has become crucial to us. So the beer that you just drank had, you know, has Michigan Chinook in it. Mm. Um, And that is that that kind of almost aggressive and almost off-putting it's not it's not dankness. I don't think as people. Yeah. Think. there's dankness in that beer. But this this undergirding of, of 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 turpentine almost in that beer for us, it's really important that that particularly as we're exploring a style, those explorations somehow and subtly generally spin against the way that style drives, um, because it's anybody can punch you in the nose with something right how then do you express more subtle nuance in a way that you're not goading out your consumer? You're not just saying here's one new hop in our already established hop base for you to spend $20 four back on. Right. Yeah. But you're actually saying here is something we fiddled with and we think is really interesting. We would like to know what you think. And, and, and that ultimately is the position we're coming from and why we're using, of course we're using the same hops everyone else uses in these beers. It's difficult to make a beer yeah. like this without using one of those big f- five hops, but it is important to, to, again, kind of kind of subvert the style with a little bit of bitterness or with a little extra acidity. Um, and again, for Nate and I, it's about making it like drink like a yeah. prisoner. You yeah. know what I mean?
0: For me? I mean, I, I'm, I find myself drawn to those. And I know in the past I've mentioned, i found, you know, like, you know, brewer like outer range making, Hazy IPA while blending in some, uh, you know, uh, British hops. Sure, uh, you know, w- makes for a really interesting approach. You know, again, partly because like we, I just drink a lot of these beers. Sure, and so anything new and interesting yeah. or quirky, you know, I I, right. I can listen to noise rock yeah. uh, that most <laughs> yeah. people might find unpalatable, but I can, I find it interesting because you know I've just listened to all those things. I I like those, uh, you know, those uh, out of the mainstream right. uh, kind of. You know, additional textures and, and whatnot. Um, you know, when you, you talk about something like Michigan schnook, you know, what kind of percentage might something like that find itself in the mix and to add just just that little bit of extra character rather than driving the entire show.
1: So in our first iteration of any beer that uses something that we're not sure of, right. We'll start around 10%. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, some of the Michigan Chinook is an example of one that can go up as high as 25%, um, and still be expressive within the beer, not dominate it. Right. Um, whereas if we were using traditional Northwest, um, Chinook, we would, we would be 10% or under for sure. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, and, and this is not a new thing about, by sure. the way, I mean, Treehouse was doing this way before we were doing yeah. it. Right? Um, but uh, you know, I, I think one of the more interesting things we've done with this style was um, uh, we, we made a beer, we had uh, AI, this was, you know, four years ago when AI was kind of more nascent than it is now, uh, name a beer for us. It was called the fine stranger. Um, and we used a Cezanne yeast with it because it was also a significant glycerol producer, um, and capable, uh, sensibly of, biotransformation. Um, and I feel like that was probably the most interesting iteration we've made of this beer. I know that other breweries have done it since. Um, and it's been interesting for them too. I, I, I kind of feel like this is a lot like I felt about West Coast IPAs earlier in this century, right? Which is that, um, the hops are kind of a slam dunk. If you can't figure out the hops, you should be able to figure out the hops, right? <laughs> yes, um, yes. <laughs> um, Or when you put them in or why, right? That's, yeah. that's all pretty common yeah. knowledge now. Um, so how you're using then yeast and to, and to some extent grain and water becomes a lot more interesting because then you're able to establish whatever nuance you'd like to establish that hops are incapable of establishing. Um, and so, again, for us with, with these beers – When we are making one to go to broad market release, like this beer that you just drank, there will be a limited amount of something that will be strange to someone, right? When we're making these beers to release out of the pub and kind of like, here it is, guys, you know, um, it'll be a little bit more eccentric. It'll be actually significantly more eccentric in one way or another. Um, But, you know, look, I've been a professional brewer for almost all of my adult life. Um, and I came from a very traditional background in brewing, uh, which has been established. I know, but um, but you know, one of the things I learned from from my first masters in Germany and then Jean Luc and Pierre was look at brewers' first responsibility is to not give anybody a hangover they don't deserve. Right, so make sure your shit's straight. Right, you're using grain appropriately, you're using yeast appropriately, you're blocking and tackling like everybody should. Right? Your fundamentals are covered. Okay. Out of 10,000 hours of mastery, that might be the first 7,000 hours. I think that's missed a lot, right? Getting ahead of yourself is a really important thing not to do, particularly when you're, you're fiddling around with a new style. Um, and then I think, and this is something that Nate and I carry with us all the time, and I, and I know to, to, to some beer fans this is not sexy or important, but not only is your job not to give someone a hangover if they don't deserve, your second job is to make a beer, a good beer, this was the quote. Um, a good beer is one that you know, the drinker can think about if they wish, but doesn't have to if they don't, right? That is, that's how we were trained beer, that's what beer is for, right? It's an accompaniment to your conversation. It's an accompaniment to the time you spend at the baseball game. It's an accompaniment to time that you're spending with your family. When it becomes the focus, it, it almost misses the cultural point. And so for us, drinkability is always important. We're not trying to inflict our whimsy on an unsuspecting public, right? We're trying to make the most perfect example of a thing that we know how to make. Um, and so that goes into everything we develop, including New England IPA. It seems like a great time to pivot and talk about lager brewing. <laughs> let's do you it. Know, because, uh,
0: just because. <laughs> sure. So let's talk about lager yeah. brewing. You know, naturally you, you come at this... You know, having that experience in Germany, being trained to brew uh, pale lager beers you know, at a large scale. Um, you brew a Hellas here that has your last name on it. So it's got to be something that, uh, uh, that you're pretty proud of. Yeah. Um, you know, talk to me about your approach to building character within this idea of beer that you can explore if you want to. Or that you can just shut up and drink if that's the experience that you want to. Also,
1: yeah, I I I do think right, and it's I, if I'm ever disabused of this, I'll be surprised. Right, um, I, I do think that, that 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 really is what beer is for, and I really think that that's built around these the these traditional styles, and 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 you can see it expressed, and everybody knows somebody that went to Germany when they were a teenager or a young adult, and everybody is sick of the stories they tell about how great the beer is over there, right? And the truth is, the beer over in, in continental Europe, really, in Germany, is, is good, right? Now, if you're going to a dozen breweries, and you will know this better than anyone, right? If you're going to a dozen breweries in continental Europe, will you find good beer? Absolutely, right? Will you find something that blows your socks off? Probably not, right? Right. That's not what they're there for, Right. Now, if you go to a dozen breweries here in the United States, you're absolutely liable to find a bunch of stuff that is horrible and a bunch of stuff that is just cosmically interesting, right? So that's the difference between the disciplines. To me, coming from music as well, um, for me, it's the difference between you know jazz or classical music and punk music, right? They both have their place. They're both important, but they're both important for different reasons. It's interesting for me then, and if I'm going too much in philosophy about this, man, just let's, feel free. To stop let's, me. You're yeah. using meta- music metaphors. <laughs> okay, so you, I give you a pass for that. All right, okay, good. good. Instantly, um, good. Um, so, w- as a person who studied classical music and jazz and, and played a lot, um, and particularly, you know, the, the the genesis of that into or, or the, the the birth of that from modal folk music, um, I think that finding yourself within a box. And, and, and instead of sort of saying, you know, my target is, you know, blowing people's mind, saying, look, my target is a small dot that moves around in this box, right? And where I position that dot within this box defines what it is that I make. Is an important exercise for anyone who is a professional to engage in, right? Because it, it necessitates restraint, right? Can I make a 10% beer? Fuck yeah, you can make a 10% beer, right? More sugar and a hearty yeast? It's done, right? Um, can I make a ten percent beer that is really drinkable? That is a difficult nut to crack, right? Just as difficult as staying within the parameters of something that is four and a half to five and a half percent ABV, generally somewhere between twelve and twenty IBU, right? Right, and is pretty much the same as everything else that is made in that same style is really complicated, and it's something you can spend a lifetime doing. And so for me, the Hellas that we sell here is more bitter than a continental Hellas would be. Um, it's come from twenty years of fucking. How with that much recipe. more bitter do you mean? Uh, well, we're that beer is about <clears throat> seventeen, eighteen IBU, um, and I would be more comfortable making a Hellas generally in kind of Europe around thirteen or fourteen, mm-hmm. um, or twelve. Um, but I, but I think that. You know, it's unless it's it, Shinram,
0: in which case it might be even more bitter than that. Right,
1: exactly. And I'm not saying there aren't exactly yeah. right, it's all over the yeah. board. But you're choosing that thing, right? So you're saying I'm saying with that beer fundamentally, look, the 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 malt base, the fermentation is something that is kind of a foregone conclusion. It's very traditional, right? The way that we're processing this through ferment, uh, fermentation, we're not filtering it, so we're letting it hang in the tank for a long time. I mean, it's boring, easy stuff that everybody knows, right? Bumping that bitterness to where it is is a part of, of what makes that beer what it is, right? Um, the grain constituents within that beer and what we're selecting and how much of what Pilsner grain we're choosing to use in that, all this is for me, right? This is a Helles beer, right? What I need to give you is a beer with really good foam stability that looks nice and rocky, that's relatively bright in the glass, particularly from the context of an an unfiltered beer. And that, again, you can sit and enjoy. And if you care to ponder whether or not it's a good beer, hopefully the answer is yes. And if you don't, hopefully that beer gets completely out of your way and lets you enjoy it the whole way through, right? Does it pass the Zauf test, right? So does it pass the idea that you can have your first beer in front of you and your first sip is about a third of the glass, right? It's easy. That's right? the Zauf test? The Zauf, Zaufen is, uh, so, gehen uh, wir trinken means let's go have a drink, right? And that's what that means. Let's have a drink, right? And enjoy ourselves and then leave. Zaufen uh, means you're going out to get drunk, right? Um, so if uh, you, the beer should be, the beer is obviously going to be able to, to be drank, right? The question is, can you drink this beer, right? And when in drinking that beer, does it serve does it still serve the same purpose, right? And so for me, the idea of traditional beer is 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 less about what I can say on a craft brewing podcast about it, right? <laughs> and 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 more about This is a giant safe space here. You right. can say what you need to say. <clears throat> and more about. <laughs> How, does it impact a beer drinker in the way the beer right, drinker right. wishes to be impacted? Right. I'm not confronting you with this beer and I'm not confronting any of our drinkers about what's special about it, because what's special about it is that I've been making this beer and refining this recipe for 20 fucking years and you shouldn't care at all. Right. I'm putting my name on it cause it's important to me. Right. You should care that it is exactly what you wanted when you opened up a can of yellow beer. That is the hardest thing to do. Right. It's the hardest thing to do in brewing. Anybody can make a ton, I do it, right? I'm guilty as anybody, right? You can make a ton of noise, punch somebody in the face with something that tastes like mangoes, it's great, right? That's how you get people's attention. That's what punk music is, right? If I'm on a stage, which I've done, playing some loud ass punk music, right? I'm beating the shit out of my guitar and if I drop it, who cares, right? Drummer's still going, I'm gonna pick it up and keep going, right? Doesn't ruin the song, adds to the experience, right? Now, if I'm in a concerto, right, and I'm playing cello, and I drop my bow, the entire thing is fucked, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's really important to be able to do both as a brewer or a musician or an athlete or, or a banker. I mean, whatever you do. And so for me, a lot of it is about philosophy. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm happy to get deeper in the technical aspect of it, but I think a lot of it's in, by uh, technology brewing and malting by Wolfgang Kunze. If you don't have it, you should.
0: Fantastic. <laughs> I, I think we've... I mean, we've pushed new boundaries yeah. in music metaphors, and I love it. <laughs> and I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Um, but let's let's zoom out here. Sure. Let's talk about the big picture. Yeah, you know, you started Old Nation. You had this idea you're going to build, you know, make some of these classic beers with some good branding, right? Put it out there in a distribution. People are going to buy. They didn't do that. Then you mm-hmm. reinvented, and now most people around the country know you for Hazy IPA. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're brewing around eighteen thousand or so barrels a year right now. It's not huge, but it's also not small. Yeah. Um, what do you hope to achieve with old nation over the next five years, over the next 10 years? What, uh, you know, when you all started this, what was the, you know, what did you hope to achieve and what does the vision look like now? You know, is there an end goal here? You know, you also have a, a you know, a restaurant in yes. the, you guys operate right here yeah. in the tap room. And so you're serving food, you're building the social environment, almost restaurant environment, which attached to production breweries. A little unusual, yeah, but, uh, not in Germany. No, no. So, you know, but what is this, you know, what's, what's the goal for old nation? What do
1: you hope to achieve? Um, so, uh, I, I would love to right size a brewery to be uh, serving the great lakes primarily, um, at about somewhere between 75 and 120,000 barrels. Um, that would be great. Um, but there's a lot of road between here and there. And we're still in what is commonly accepted to be, and is in fact a real danger zone for breweries in terms of our size. Um, You know, we have another 15,000 barrels or so to go annually before we get out of that. Um, So there's a lot of fighting that we're doing. Um, And a lot of that revolves around trying to keep M43, particularly in the great lakes as fresh as possible on the shelf, which means Saying no to distributors quite often in terms of how much inventory they're able to carry and a lot of other boring shit like that. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, So, doing it, doing that at all, right? Making that step up to 35, then, you know, 60, then 75, 100, 120 is difficult anyway. It's particularly difficult when you have to have a constant throughput of your main beer and you're essentially managing several distributors' inventories remotely. Um, in order to make sure that they're not, A, they're getting beer that's as fresh as possible, right? We're shipping beer to Chicago on Wednesday, and it's sold by the next Monday, for example. That's really crucial to us, Um, that the beer's not hitting the shelf at three weeks old. Not because it's not stable. It absolutely is. But because the perception of the drinker is such that they want to make sure that they have fresh beer. And for crying out loud, they're spending 15 bucks a four-pack on it. They should get it if that's what they want,
0: right? Yeah. So that is difficult. What's the what's the life? What's the window? Uh,
1: the uh, on M forty three. M forty three is one hundred and twenty day beer. Yeah. It does drop off after about seventy days or so. Sure. If it's if it's stored of warm, then it's different as well. And those yeah, are difficult yeah. things to negotiate with brewers and retailers as well. Yeah. And a lot of those things are out of our control. What we can control is what comes out of this brewery, and the timing of when it hits the distributor's inventory, and when we assume then that it will go out. Right. Yeah. So it would be difficult if we were filling this brewery up with whatever, you know, Red Ale or Imperial Stout or who knows, right? If we were filling it up, emptying it out, getting everybody's inventory levels up and then doing it, you know, again, um, that would be much easier than what it is that we're dealing with now. Um, So it's an uncertain path to that kind of growth, but we've been lucky and relatively successful now and we think we have the skill to get it done. So that's where we hope to be in about 10 years from now. That's
0: fascinating. I would say that most folks that launched a brewery in the mid twenty teens did not have production brewery aspirations. Yeah. yeah, and so it's it's actually kind of interesting and refreshing to yeah. hear that 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 is, you know, that you all set out to do that and that you are working towards and pursuing that. Yeah, um, it's just it is a little different than the folks that you know just want to create a tap room and build some beer and
1: yeah yeah yeah. I wasn't I wasn't necessarily trying to. I wasn't not trying to do this, but I wasn't going into this in the mindset of, you know, let me express my art to these consumers as much as I was, how can I use the skill and tools that I have in order to serve the people in my community and in the state and in the region better? And uh, that'll always be our goal.
0: That is a great place to bring this to a close. (laughs) G&D Chillers Chillers has partnered with 3,000-plus breweries across the country and offers 24-7 service and support. Raw North Star Pills is a base malt you can set your compass by. AccuBrew gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. Pro Brew Solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer. Trust the experts at Old Orchard to handle freight for your ingredients. SS Brewtech has taken tech they invented working with industry vets and made them available to every craft brewer. Pack Tech Handles are the sustainable solution to handle your craft beer. And Berkeley Yeast's Thiol Boost is pure liquid thiol precursors that take tropics to the next level. If you've enjoyed this episode and any others, please go to beerbrew.com. Click on that subscribe button. Let us know this content matters to you. Travis, if people want to learn more about Old Nation, about M43, about Fritz Lager, any of these beers across the spectrum that uh, that you take a particularly technical, tight, German-inspired studied approach to uh, and maximize the science around. Where, uh, where do they find you all?
1: Uh, so oldnationbrewing.com is the best place to find us. The website is under construction. Now you can go on it. There's, there's a lot of resources there, um, but it will look a little bit tighter in about four months. Um, and be presented a little bit better and certainly all of our social media pages you can find us if you if you search old nation there Um, we're updating we're selling beer through the social media pages for more information about what the beer is Um, I would say the website's the best place to go Uh,
0: thank you for joining me on the podcast it's been fun talking to you about your approach you you know in all of its wonkiness (laughs) and all of its uh, technical precision cheers I appreciate it thanks man